So China generally, statistically speaking, every year extreme weather events cost the country about 2.5 percent of its GDP. Just with、uh, less than one degree Celsius、uh, temperature rise, that、uh, now we experience、uh, 15 more days of hot weather globally. And、uh, think about 1.5, and think about two, and even beyond that, it's it's hard to imagine. Last year, we have seen this new record of、uh, coal consumption, a significant rebound of carbon emission, and this year the trend is continuing. That's the biggest concern.、Uh, I think we're still, as a global culture, as a global economy, but also at the national level, committed to unsustainable growth and consumption patterns. How do we continue to grow to sustain or increase consumption in ways that we can bear environmentally? The Chat Lounge. Chat Lounge. Chat Lounge. The Chat Lounge unpacks views and opinions on hot issues in a more casual way. Welcome to the Chat Lounge. I'm Tuyun. Joining our discussion on climate extremes are. Changhua Wu, Executive Director of the Professional Association for China's Environment; Ma Jun, Director of the Beijing-based Environmental Group Institute of Public and Environmental Affairs; and Joseph Mahoney, Professor of Politics and International Relations at East China Normal University in Shanghai. Welcome to you all. So, first of all, I want to start with Changhua.、Uh, tell us whether. There's any unusual climate or, or weather condition you're experiencing where you are right now, which is in Washington. Well,、uh, I think the U.S. in a broader sense.、Uh, so、uh, five weeks, five instances of 1,000-year rainfall events、uh, happening in the south southwest of the U.S. that are happening now. And in the backdrop of this one hundred twelve hundred year record, sort of driest actually in the West、uh, states and also South Plain regions there,、uh, so they somehow they overlap in many parts of the regions, but somehow、uh, the thousand year record rainfall、uh, still have not managed to drive away、uh, the the the,、uh, the heat waves or the the banger droughts yet. Uh, so in the U.S.、Uh, this year, I think、uh, on record there are already、uh, more than ten、mm. uh, extreme weather events already,、uh, with economic losses already exceeding billions of dollars and the lives lost. And、uh, so it's becoming a new abnormal、uh, these days, actually in this part of the world. Uh, I think similar to other regions as well.、Mm, no better here in in China. Jin, what's your observation here? Yeah, here this summer we're we're still you know moving toward the end of the longest stretch of、uh, heat wave、uh, mm. in the vast、uh, Yangtze River basin. You know we're talking hundreds of millions have been exposed to, to the heat wave. Dozens upon dozens of, of uh, uh, cities uh, have experienced uh, um, you know their、uh, stretch of days of uh, uh, high temperature over forty degrees Celsius. Trust that's above、uh, some hundred and three degree Fahrenheit, and some of the cities,、uh, like in Chongqing and part of Hubei,、uh, it moved toward above forty-four Celsius, and、uh, some 
just set new record for this uh, central and east part of China with uh, over 45 degrees Celsius. Uh, and uh, along with that, uh, we have seen Yangtze River Valley experience one of the worst drought in this monsoon season. It's supposed to be the rainy season, but for over 60 days and many regions in this uh, part of the China, for over 70 days, not much rainfall at all. So in general, so far this year, the uh, the rainfall precipitation have uh, dropped by 45% in the Yangtze River Valley and uh, in, uh, um, in western part, you know, in Sichuan and Chongqing, it has dropped by 80%. Uh, as a result, uh, you know, shortage of water supply and uh, the power rationing and outage due to the hydropower difficulty and then bushfire in quite a few places as well. Right. In my hometown, home province, Jiangxi, uh, the Poyang Lake, the, the country's biggest uh, freshwater lake, is up to half dried up already. So, Joseph, you've been in China or in Shanghai for for over 10 years already, right? A long time. So yeah. what's your experience this summer? Well, you know, I have spent uh, most of the summer in Shanghai. I did, I did travel out to, to Guangzhou, Hunan, Hefei, and Langzhou. Uh, I didn't find any uh, escape uh, from the heat wherever I went. Mm. But uh, here in Shanghai uh, this summer, the temperatures uh, have exceeded uh, 40 degrees Celsius uh, more than 20 days. Uh, with the heat index uh, often higher than 50. And I recall one miserable day when the temperature was 42 and the heat index was 55, which for American listeners would correspond uh, roughly to 108 Mm. uh, uh, degrees and 132 degrees Fahrenheit, which is, you know, absolutely miserable. When we look at the the broader data, uh, we find that this summer in Shanghai is the hottest on record um, going back 150 years at least. And uh, the Wangpu River, which is the big river here locally, is at its lowest level in a decade. Mm. Uh, additionally, uh, the Suzhou Creek, which you know cuts through all of Shanghai, is running much lower than usual, with uh, some of its little tributaries uh, down to a trickle. We've seen the Shanghai government uh, responding by discussing rationing some electricity, for example, some of the lighting downtown along the Wangpu River that makes it uh, an attractive tourist uh, destination at night. So comparatively speaking, Beijing seems to be the normal one. Um, But actually, extreme weather events are are nothing new to human beings now, taking place almost every year. So on a broader scope, uh, Joseph, is there anything particularly unusual you've observed in the globe this year? Well, you know, it, you're you're right to note that it's nothing unusual. It, it, it's something that has has been a defining characteristic of human history going back thousands of years. Mm, uh, in fact, there are studies that indicate that one of the reasons why we see the Ming Dynasty collapsing is due to uh, the impact of the Mini Ice Age and the instability that this created, and this led to a number of factors that. Um, ultimately left China in a, in a weaker and weaker position over time, particularly in the face of rising Western powers that, that then took advantage of this and um, in the early 19th century. But in more recent times, of course, um, you're right that uh, this has become sort of the new normal, the, the, the abnormal normal. Mm-hmm. Um, and, there, you know, globally, there, there appears to be increasing cases of extreme weather, as well as 
growing conviction that climate change is in fact an existential threat. But at the same time, I don't think we're really seeing much yet in the way of forward progress in terms of effective international cooperation. In fact, I, I think we're, what we're seeing is increasing forms of competition as nations are struggling, as regions and localities are struggling. Mm. And this will actually undermine the capacity to, to work together as uh, people try to um, survive under more and more difficult conditions. Mm. Welcome to international cooperation you just mentioned um, later in the show. But uh, Jin, you've Anything or any particular extreme weather condition you think worth extra um, attention? Yeah, absolutely. There, there are uh, extreme uh, heat wave in other parts of the world. Changhua mentioned about North America and mm. um, in in India, for example. You know, it happened uh, much earlier. The extreme heat wave. Uh, Hit India, Pakistan much earlier this year, and then in West Europe, which used to have a pretty mild weather and sometimes pretty cool summer, uh, but this year uh, they also experienced very very high temperature. Like uh, in UK, I think the temperature went beyond 40 degrees Celsius in a very rare scenario. And then in Germany and other parts of the West Europe, they experienced very bad drought. Uh, in southern Europe, the heat wave uh, plus the drought have caused a lot of wildfires, and um, this year the wildfires are particularly bad in France. Talking about the reasons behind that, uh, all these have uh, have something to do with uh, a weather system called the subtropical high. This mm-hmm. high pressure weather system is. Uh, Is dry and um, uh, when it dominates uh, a region, then it will clear the sky and uh, enhance the radiation of the sun. And and it's because it's very dry and uh, it will bring the heat wave along with that. And usually, this um, West Pacific subtropical high uh, will only enter this uh, Yangtze River. Basin in second half of July, but this year it's very different. You know, it moved in in June and then continued to dominate there. And then we unfortunately we don't have much typhoon coming this year as well. So there's no other factors that can break this. But I agree with、uh, Joseph that、uh, the bigger backdrop of the, all of this is the global climate change. All these、uh, extreme weather events is aligned with.、Uh, What most of the scientists concluded, you know, agreed upon in the IPCC UN IPCC report.、Mm, indeed, and、uh, in general,、uh, increasing human activity caused、um, green gas emissions are believed to be the culprit behind、um, the current extreme weather conditions. But、uh, Changhua, are there any peculiar driving factors、um, when we look at each of the seven continents and you know the two poles?、Uh- I think, as we're talking about here today, there are a few things、uh, sort of、uh, clear out there. One, particularly in the northern hemisphere, and、uh, extreme weather events, particularly this summer represented by extreme heat waves, of course,、uh, plus droughts or mega droughts, as well as flash flooding. You know, heavy rainfalls are pretty much sort of、uh, more frequent. Uh, what we're talking about the variation is not about just seasonal changes or shifts. We're talking about literally so 
you know, at least a 100 year record, 200 year, 500 years, as, as I mentioned, actually, now we are literally looking into even 1000 year sort of record breaking extremes. So uh, I think that's a given fact. The second element to pay attention to is a sort of a fluctuation widely, you know, from a significantly sort of dry to record wide conditions could literally, you know, flip, mm-hmm. right? And uh, of course, the, you know, from science scientists' perspective, at the conclusions becoming more and more clear, we could more and more linking even some individual uh, extreme weather events to climate change, mm. right? And uh, I think Marjin started already talking about, uh, you know, more like the science, you know, the physics of the climate physics there. Why? There are a few things actually influencing, uh, particularly the Northern Hemisphere, uh, you know, climate or weather, extreme weather events there. One, something we call like ocean anomalies, right? And mm. looking at the air-ocean interaction, something called the La Nina. Uh, so now we are in the third year of La Nina. There's a cold sort of phase of, uh, you know, uh, this is sort of pressure air. And uh, so that's been influencing dramatically. The second part actually is about the warming, right? And uh, so the globe is warming. And uh, as we all know, uh, when the temperature rises and uh, it's dramatically interrupting the hydrological cycle of the Earth, on average with one degree Celsius increase temperature, uh, the air will be able to suck up 7% more moisture from the Earth, Mm. right? And the third element in there is about a jet stream, the flow. And so literally the physics, the climate phases of the atmosphere we started to understand more and more. And to large extent, we'll be able also to forecast, like right? forecast was, was lying ahead. Uh, that's very encouraging, exciting to see. Somehow, hopefully through that process, we'll be able to you know, become, you know, get early warning, uh, get a better prepared and uh, to take whatever action necessary to minimize, not totally prevent, but to minimize the control, the loss and the damages as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Then what about um, the so-called butterfly effects? I'm always wondering whether there could be this uh, event where this butterfly sways its wings and there is a, a storm thousands of miles away. Yeah, I mean, see, again, I'm not a natural scientist, so I wouldn't be able to really uh, answer all this, or even from a meteorological perspective, I wouldn't be able to answer mm-hmm. at the uh, accurate sort of scientific, using scientific language there. As I said, you know, with all the anomalies and uh, the changes, we are literally changing, as I said, the biggest impact is about changing the hydrological cycle, uh, the water cycle of the Earth and uh, the, the atmospheric activities are changing dramatically. Mm. So that's why we start to see more and more like a sudden uh, sort of changes or events. So somewhere happens somehow through, as I said, the jet stream is a very, very big factor in that process. And because that pretty much carries some sort of events, expanding that quickly to other parts of the world. And uh, so, as I said, I wouldn't be able to uh, yeah. answer very scientifically, but somehow that's the new abnormal we are getting more and more, getting used to get to know. So hopefully we're going to be getting better prepared. Right. So it can't be triggered by some accidental event. It seems it's becoming some new norm. So let's move on to the impact of such kind of new norm. Uh, here in China, the most direct impact is that uh, 
as um, Margin just mentioned. Rivers in many places have dried out, and the capacity of some major hydropower stations has been greatly reduced, you know, some by half, which has severely affected um, industrial production and people's daily lives. So some say the heat wave is more destructive than the COVID pandemic. Um, Joseph, is that so? Do, do we have any data to support the conclusion? I think it's very difficult to have a full picture of the data at this point. But uh, what we can say is that both COVID control policies and the heat wave uh, have been very costly. Uh, the direct and indirect cost altogether, including economic, political, and social, can only be estimated uh, at this time. And it's it's unfortunate that the heat wave and COVID are being, you know, faced at the same time. But but there are two key points here that I think we should elaborate. Mm. First, not controlling and containing COVID is also extremely costly. Uh, for example, the cost in the U.S. Uh, just with 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 COVID alone, it seeds trillions of dollars. First, trying to control, then failing, then trying to recover with deep economic, political, and social wounds uh, remaining. You know, more than a million American lives were lost and estimates uh, indicating as many as 20% of those who have been affected have suffered from long COVID, including in many cases, uh, forms of significant uh, cognitive decline. Now, amid that chaos, we saw crime rates, including murders, suicides, drug and alcohol abuse, juvenile delinquency and child abuse skyrocket while productivity, consumer confidence, and children's test scores uh, plummeted. We also saw uh, political polarization worsening with a large majority having little to no confidence in government and uh, each new election cycle threatening violence and more dysfunction. So if we look at this from the Chinese perspective, uh, which includes the high value places on responsible governance, uh, the cost of not controlling COVID are probably viewed as intolerable. My second point is, you know, this has been uh, a difficult year in terms of extreme weather. However, we need to understand that climate change and disease outbreaks are strongly correlated by some estimates. In other words, environmental changes appear to be impacting how viruses mutate and increasing the chances they'll cross the species barrier. And this is why uh, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control had models indicating uh, several years ago uh, a new coronavirus outbreak was due around the time COVID-19 emerged because we've seen previous new coronaviruses, including SARS and MERS, indicating this trend. So while we see China trying to limit the cost of COVID and doing so in expensive ways, we might understand this as a new form of social investment, uh, putting in place the sort of capacities in terms of governance, infrastructure, scientific research, production, and so on, that not only responds to this outbreak, but is preparing for more to come, particularly as global warming or climate change continues to be a, a growing problem. Because again, more outbreaks are predicted, not just new mutations of COVID, but altogether new outbreaks. And in fact, models uh, indicate that we got lucky with COVID-19, that, that scientists expected a much worse outbreak than what we got, and uh, they still expect something worse than COVID to come along. So, you know, I think that we have to look at these costs in terms of, of the investment, uh, the ability to confront the future, uh, sort of a long-term planning model that's taking place in China, but much less so in other countries. The Chat Lounge. The Chat Lounge unpacks views and opinions on hot issues in a more casual way. 
You're listening to the Chat Lounge, and we are talking about climate extremes. Jun, how worried are you? Yeah, well, I very much agree with Joseph on all this、uh, analysis. And、um, uh, when it comes to COVID,、uh, we we need to recognize that, that COVID nineteen is having a unprecedented、uh, impact.、Uh, you know, over the past one hundred years, I think this is definitely the worst and the most destructive pandemic that has occurred. Uh, over the past、uh, nearly three years, and、um, so in that sense, it's、uh, there's almost like no comparison. Having said that,、uh, uh, we need to recognize first,、uh, you know, the pandemic will come and go. Eventually, you know, it will go, but.、Um, But unfortunately, the, the global climate change is going to linger on and continue. And、um, there is an expectation, you know,、mm-hmm. according to the science research, that、um, say the global warming is causing the rising of the rise of the sea level. For instance,、uh, even if we cut all the emission today,、mm-hmm. uh, the sea level is going to continue to rise、uh, for more than a thousand years. So that just、uh, showcases that how this、um, global warming, climate change. Going to have a, a, you know, we have to deal with that、uh, in a much longer period of time, and、um, with all the consequences and probably catastrophic consequences. And then the second point I want to make is、um, just an observation. In the worst part, you mentioned your hometown is in Jiangxi, and、mm. I took a trip a couple of weeks ago to Jiangxi, and、uh, I have an observation of the low level of the rivers there, and. And had the chance to take a bird's eye view of the Poyang Lake,、mm. and, and the largest freshwater lake, which、uh, served to absorb the monsoon flooding of the Yangtze River,、uh, this year have been diminished to a small meandering stream. It was shocking. A lot of bottom of the lake bed have been exposed, and、uh, the other part of、uh, turning to almost like a grassland,、mm-hmm. and.、Um, And so it was really shocking. And another observation is that、uh, I actually haven't、uh, experienced much、uh, mosquito bites,、uh, despite you know traveling in that region, which supposed、uh, you know originally had more of this in southern part of Jiangxi.、Mm. But、um, this year, you know, mosquito bites became more serious in Beijing. You know, there are concerns that、uh, the climate change might change this.、Uh, The weather pattern and cause the the diseases、uh, to move to be relocated as well. And、uh, we, you know, this、uh, this nexus between climate change and pandemic and diseases, we really need to、uh, pay attention to.、Uh, I would like to jump in here.、Mm. I think th- this、Please. is a very important question. There, I think I do agree with、uh, both Joseph and Margin's points. That、uh, if you look at the impact in a broad way, it's really really hard to compare.、Uh, you know, in terms of if you use an economic losses, whatever, to measure, you know, which one is bigger. I, at least I haven't really seen any numbers or you know、uh, statistics out there yet. But the one important point to I think it sort of decode this question is that on top of a COVID lockdown,、mm-hmm. which has already disrupted dramatically. The economic, social activities, the supply chains, everything like that. Now came the you know extreme heat waves, right, and droughts and the extreme weather events. So now we have something we call the heat inflations, right? right. Because that's that's you know heat inflation, heat related inflation,、uh, in particular about food. 
good supply there, right? Yeah, which is one of the major issues we're talking about already there. The second one actually is about energy. Okay. Uh, you know, heatwaves. Media has been reporting this. You know, hydropower in Sichuan province. That's huge. That dramatically, when the power system is a challenge, that's interrupting everything, mm-hmm. all the economic activities. So it's so surprising why. The government has been, you know, at national level, local level, have been asking, you know, the industry to shut down, literally turn off the lights, shutting down facilities, whatever. And then, of course, at the core of it is about water. And uh, so, uh, you know, extreme heat with the jobs, meaning we don't have enough water. Mm-hmm. And the water is dwindling at this moment. And the water is alive. So without the water, uh, you know, basically, again, just like, uh, you know, electricity, it's hard to do anything. And the Besides this impact around like food, water, and energy, then I think Martin mentioned already health. You know, mosquito is one of the examples. So the health impact, public health impact, which has not been debated much, uh, at least not in the Chinese media at this moment. Plus, extreme weather events also actually impact other lives in nature. It's not just human lives, right? Other lives in nature, because we are part of nature in the ecosystems there. Mm. So if you add up all those sort of impacts, the numbers will be shocking. At least I don't have the numbers, but just imagine not only China, I think similar cases, actually like in the US, uh, in Europe, in you know South Asia, we all know, actually, and the impact of the losses and damages are huge. So China generally, statistically speaking, every year, extreme weather events cost the country about 2.5% of its GDP. Uh, just imagining that. So again, back to the point, the question is, say, you know, whether we will compare so COVID to lockdown versus actually extreme, the, the record heat waves, the impact there is harder to compare apple to peer or apple to apple, whatever. But we all know, actually, on top of that, with all the extreme weather events, the heat waves, the impact, uh, the losses, uh, the cost to Chinese economy, to the society are going to be astronomical. Uh, that's bullshit. And this is not going to be just a one-year case. Last year, we had this Henan uh, province, this is extreme flooding. Right? Yeah. And this year, they're flooding as well. Today, we're just talking about heat waves. And they're flooding, uh, you know, flash flooding in many parts of the country, different seasons there as well, even now, right, in Qinghai and others. So anyway, so uh, I think in the sort of a new abnormal sort of uh, situation, somehow this is a part of the cost prices we have to pay, costs we have to bear because of the intensifying climate change impacts there. Mm. Uh, Let me add one one quick thing here. Sure. I, I agree with the others are saying, I think my point on the, on the intersection of COVID and, and climate change is the more important point. But one of the, the bigger concerns that some people have when they talk about China and climate change is the extent to which we see the desertification in the western part of China and you know this growing closer and closer to Beijing. We can talk about climate change and, and flash floods or rivers drying up in areas that have been traditionally wet, but probably the bigger concern is the areas that have been dry are getting drier. And the question of whether or not we'll be able to really sustain large cities in, in the western part of China over the long term is a big question. Mm. Um, and one of the things that people point to is the extent to which water in China is effectively subsidized by the government and whether or not this is itself a sustainable policy or whether or not it 
it is um, something that is um, permitting the use of water in ways that are unsustainable, not just economically unsustainable, but also environmentally unsustainable. So this is something that crops up in discussions with a lot of people who study water resources and water scarcity around the world about this looming challenge that already exists and, and the chance that it will grow much worse for large parts of China. Yeah, actually, those impacts that we are seeing uh, around the world, not just in China, uh, water shortage, energy shortage, you name it. But um, if it's within one country, it seems easier to solve the problem that we got this uh, water diversion project from uh, south to the north. But in Europe, it, it could be much more difficult because a river runs through a lot of countries. If, if a river, you know, dries up, I'm wondering whether those climate extremes may cause competition or, or even political conflicts um, over resources. First, you know, Europe has long been uh, in, in the vanguard of, of being socially and politically sensitive about climate change, uh, mm. despite not being the most severely impacted, or at least not, you know, impacted as, as, as much as other places have been. That said, we did see spikes in heat-related deaths in Europe this summer, along with a lot of general suffering and concern that conditions are getting worse. Additionally, as long-standing developed nations, most European countries are more sensitive to environmental changes because they've um, uh, built these very finely tuned economies based on climate. For example, France is essentially divided into microclimates in which, you know, specific grape varieties are produced for different types of wine. And other areas of Europe feature outdoor sports in the winter and summer that depend on stable weather. And of course, some areas are just not equipped to handle high heat. Uh, for example, a lot of people in the UK don't have air conditioners. And even if they did, they wouldn't have the energy supplies to run them. Mm. Uh, and so people are not used to suffering much comparatively. These people are often the loudest to scream when the first pinches of pain come. Uh, that said, the challenges of trying to recover from COVID while facing inflation worsened by the conflict in Ukraine and the energy crunch uh, given Russia's response to Western sanctions means uh, European countries are facing difficult decisions about how to ration energy supplies now and especially this winter, and how to do so without plunging their economies into recession, how to do so without completely undermining their efforts to move to renewable energy sources, which are often so costly. And this is, you know, something we've already seen in Germany with discussions about bringing mothballed coal power plants back online. Mm. Second, one of my concerns, and I've spoken about this in other places, uh, but it's sort of a developing analysis, is whether climate change might be a cofactor in the Russian decision to enter Ukraine. Now, there's no evidence to suggest that, that decision makers in Moscow were guided by climate change considerations. However, what we do know is that Russia, more than any other country, is predicted to benefit from climate change, uh, with melting ice creating more open land and coastlines in the north, and uh, with Russia's economy depending so much on selling fossil fuels. And we know that the conflict in Ukraine is making efforts to fight climate change in Europe and beyond uh, more difficult. So whether or not Russia thought about climate change before entering Ukraine, the conflict has clear implications for climate change that might benefit Russia strategically over the long term, especially as its competitors uh, increasingly suffer. Now, to the broader question, uh, there have long been studies 
indicating that conflicts in many parts of the world, uh, including, for example, the Middle East, have less to do about religion and ideology than they do about water. Furthermore, rivers are natural borders between countries, and as water becomes more scarce, these countries sometimes fight over access and control. Mm. Uh, and this is not a new phenomenon. Uh, additionally, some rivers start in some countries and flow downstream to others, and what countries do upstream can have major implications for those below. Yeah. Uh, we see this in many places, uh, including China, where you know Michael the River. major rivers of right. Vietnam uh, start in China. So if China builds hydroelectric facilities or use uh, that water for other purposes, especially when facing uh, drought conditions, as is the case now, it can directly impact agricultural production, food-related inflation, and even drinking water in places downstream like uh, Vietnam. Can I just add to one particular point? Sure. I think Joseph has definitely done a very great overview of the situation, uh, but I do want to emphasize one thing. Today, when we talk about water, we, talk, we use the language, we, talk, we, we use water security. Mm. So in the extreme weather events, and uh, so as I mentioned early on, the biggest disruption uh, is really the, the water cycle, right? You know, in some places we see too much, we call it too much, some places too little, mm. or, you know, and of course, besides the too dirty, there's the pollution issues there uh, as well. And uh, so if, if you look, you know, besides Europe, you just look at, I think, just, just starting mentioning the Mekong River, you know, yeah. uh, there's a sort of cross-border uh, river sheds uh, that has been and will continue to be a major hotspot of potential conflicts. And, uh, uh, you know, if you look at uh, within the U.S., the Colorado River uh, and uh, the reservoirs like Lake Mead, Lake Powell, and a major debate has been going on even more so today, actually, is about this among the seven states uh, that literally rely on Colorado River to provide supply water. Uh, there is uh, literally the water, you know, some many places, no water anymore with less and less water. Yeah. So conflicts around the water has become sort of a, a new normal there as well. And uh, that triggers new debates, which is already happening about water security, about governance, about equity, justice, and besides, actually, we have also looked into the bioregion, the, the planetary sort of, uh, you know, uh, capacity, the water situation there. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think it's a huge issue already on the table. I serve as the vice chair of the governing council of Asia Water Pacific Forum uh, for about a decade already. Uh, so you could imagine the water security has been debated, that have been involved in the debating, actually, particularly in the Asia Pacific region. It's even getting worse. But then on the positive side, it's been, as I said, it's been treated as a security threat uh, these days. Uh, so that's really getting more and more political leaders' you know, attention. And with all the stakeholders coming together, trying to figure out actually how to address this, mm -hmm. you started to see you know, solutions around the governance, around the finance, besides science and technology, right? The infrastructure, urban, rural economic water security, uh, you know, uh, environmental water security, as, as well as natural disasters, sort of security challenges there as well. Uh, so that's a sort of on the exciting side, because we are living in crisis, and somehow we have to become more adaptive and resilient. And uh, the one thing to happen is basically we need to collectively as humanity figure out how to address this challenge. Mm. Well, we'll talk a little bit more about the better management of uh, those resources. Um, 
in a while. But uh, Jun, any other impacts you are concerned? Yeah, this year absolutely. You know, heat, heat wave, and uh, and then along with that,、uh, the the drought, very very unusual drought in the monsoon season. As a result, we have seen now、uh, more than six provinces.、Uh, In more than fifth, six uh, uh, provinces, uh, we have、uh, some 12 million more of farmland exposed to drought, and、um, some 160,000 livestock uh, uh, have been、uh, impacted as well. I think all this have uh, uh, a lot to do with this uh, uh, lack of rainfall, and then the、uh, the incoming water. Major rivers have been cut by half, and in some cases more than that. And、um, I fully agree with、uh, with the Changhua and Joseph that、um, this is,、uh, you know, this year we're we're suffering from the drought, and、uh, it will have impact and、uh, on the、uh, of the reservoir of the dam, and then try to also promote, you know,、uh, send emergency supply for irrigation. But over the long run, this is、uh, something that we need to seriously research how this changing climate、uh, will have an impact on water security and the security、uh, of our food supply. And、uh, globally, I think、uh, there are famous, you know, cases like、um, in the Middle East and in Colorado River, but also in the River Nile and、uh, a conflict over over the water resources between Egypt.、Um, Ethiopia and、uh, and now Sudan and in、uh, South Asia, the conflict over、uh, Indus River and、uh, and now some concerns over those uh, uh, international rivers um, uh, that uh, originated from the Qinghai Tibetan Plateau and within China there are also these huge implications、uh, that we need to pay attention. Now you know Yangtze River. Is not just、uh, the water source for more than 400 million residents within the、uh, the basin, within the valley, but also it's、uh, it's now a crucial lifeline for northern part of China. In Beijing, every 10 cups of water we drink, seven of them coming from the Han River, the longest tributary of the Yangtze. And this year, Han River have also experienced a very very serious drought. And、um, as a result. To try to adapt to this changing situation, the government have now just initiated a, an extension of this、uh, south to north water diversion project、uh, and try to divert water directly from the mainstream of the Yangtze from the Three Gorges Dam to try to supplement the losses of resources、uh, in the middle and downstream of the Han River. And now, you know, with this,、uh, with such a kind of changing climate, we we cannot just、uh, try to adapt to that. We also need to mitigate. And so far this year,、uh, we share the concern that、uh, because of this,、uh, you know, pandemic impact and、uh, power shortage, and also the the Ukraine-Russia war, the, the heightened geopolitical tension. All major economies released their coal capacity, fossil fuel capacity. As a result, last year we have seen a, a new record of coal consumption, a significant rebound of carbon emission, and this year the trend is continuing.、Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's the biggest concern, and、uh, we need to、uh, really take actions、uh, in China and globally to try to deal with that. The Chat Lounge. 
The Chat Lounge unpacks views and opinions on hot issues in a more casual way. Before we go to、uh, international cooperation, I still got one issue: is the viruses、uh, that were frozen in the glaciers being released? You know, because of this、um, global warming. You know,、mm-hmm. would that be a big concern, Chenghua? It is、uh, not only in the Arctic, but also in you know in taiga tundra. So、uh, lots of bacteria actually、uh, sort of frozen、uh, in the glaciers、uh, in in the northern sort of Arctic regions there.、Mm. Uh, now with this、uh, you know accelerated melting,、uh, are going to be、uh, released actually. Uh, so, if you look at the Public Health Epidemiological Society,、uh, more and more research are following that as well. But in terms of to what extent、uh, we will be impacted by that, I don't think we understand that yet. But the good thing is that the awareness is there. Scientific research scientists are following that very, very closely.、Mm-hmm. Somehow, hopeful through that process, we'll be able to know more. Uh, to know the unknowns as much as possible, so that we'll be able to take、um, effective measures to prevent, avoid, prevent、uh, disasters that are going to impact actually human beings. Not only human lives, actually, we、we'll、also need to be concerned about you know impacting on other lives actually in nature there as well. So we don't know. Fingers crossed. And would it affect、uh, the pace of of the governments、um, fulfilling their commitments on climate? That's a big debate today,、mm-hmm. and uh, uh, as we're talking about it here, this literally is energy security, water security, food security. We are literally living in crisis. So, short term,、uh, any governments actually have to take immediate actions, whatever available out there. Fossil fuels happen to be the sort of the easiest、uh, option because it's been there,、mm-hmm. uh, it's available,、uh, it's accessible. And、uh, so that's why,、uh, you know, from North America to Europe to Asia, any part of the world, actually, fossil fuels are coming back. Coal is definitely coming back in a big way, and as, as well as oil and、uh, gas there as well. And、uh, somehow, in the meantime, I think in parallel, you know, you see the renewable energy, clean energy transition、uh, is still advancing, probably not as fast as we hope. Because of disruption of the supply chain globally, because clean energy requires, you know, critical metals, minerals, right?、Mm. And uh, uh, so now, you know, not only from COVID, but also now with the war and also with the extreme weather events,、uh, you know, disasters, the shutdowns, whatever, they are disrupted. So the clean energy transition probably is not advancing as fast as we could. On top of that, actually, if you look at the U.S.-China. Rivalry、mm. around the supply chain reshaping—that's really, really damaging. Even though,、um, you know, a niche on their own, they all made a serious commitment to, to accelerate the clean energy revolution.、Uh, if you look at the recently adopted new law,、uh, the Inflation Reduction Law, or the, like the Climate Bill in the U.S. to a certain extent,、uh, we are literally doing the same thing, right? Electric vehicles, renewable energies, energy efficiency—you know, you name it. But somehow we are supposed to actually really lead the race, you know, on the same, you know, winning the same track. But somehow the U.S. geopolitical games and the China policy and、uh, sees China as the biggest uh, uh, sort of、uh, rivalry 
and a threat to the U.S. national security. So it's been decoupling China or freezing China from its own clean energy transition there. That's already and will definitely and generate a tremendous waste of resources and financial capitals as well, particularly around the supply chain. And the one major consequence actually is slowing down. Uh, the desired acceleration of a clean energy transition. Mm. So back to the question, say whether I, I haven't seen any governments say, oh, sorry, I'm going to withdraw from the Paris Agreement or Glasgow Climate Pact. I haven't seen that yet. Uh, even morally, ethically, I don't think any government would like to do that at this particular moment. But somehow in reality, energy security has de- definitely taken over as the priority and the climate change you know, decarbonization definitely is, uh, you know, comes back to the secondary or the third, you know, mm. the third place in terms of priorities there. That's pretty much common. Hopefully that short term, midterm, longer term will be back to the track. Right. Said it all. I'd like to, uh, sure, I'd like to add to that. So, you know, I agree with a lot of what Chung was saying, but uh, to, to add to this, we're already seeing uh, governments fail to meet some of their commitments. Uh, in global climate conferences, despite a lot of positive talk, we see deep reluctance to make uh, substantive uh, changes. Uh, this is why we keep hearing dire warnings from uh, the United Nations leadership that little to nothing has been done and that conditions are in fact getting worse. Now, there are three basic problems here. Uh, First, competition between countries is getting worse. And we can look at this in in many different ways. Chenghua mentioned the competition between China and US. Mm. We also have the competition between the UK and the EU, uh, between uh, Europe and Russia, between Russia and the United States. Uh, Again, these are creating new economic costs and inefficiencies, decreasing cooperation and increasing reliance on fossil fuels. Second, uh, I think we're still, as a global culture, as a global economy, but also at the national level, committed to unsustainable growth and consumption patterns. How do we continue to grow, to sustain, or increase consumption in ways that uh, we can bear environmentally? And I'll give one example here. Mm. You know, we've we've seen, for example, the, the wide adoption of 5G, and we know that 5G represents an exponential increase in terms of data usage or uh, or data availability uh, over 4G. But what a lot of people don't realize is that 5G also represents an exponential increase in energy usage, right? Yeah. And furthermore, we have uh, the, the technology uh, for 6G already exists. Um, it's just that we have to build the infrastructure incrementally and we do that by stepping from 5G upward. Uh, But we're expected to have 6G in just a few years. And 6G is an exponential increase over 5G. So, you know, the bigger question, and I I haven't seen reliable data to give us a fuller sense of this. The bigger question is, you know, to what extent is our current and growing and expected increases in energy usage, to what extent is this outpacing dramatically our movement to uh, renewable energy uh, supplies. And the third point here is the more we fail, the harder it is for us to recover and the more likely we'll encounter uh, possible tipping points and cascade effects that we don't yet anticipate. Mm. Now, we did see in the last uh, couple of weeks, major climate legislation pass and sign into law in the US. Uh, And this should be applauded and encouraged. But there's no certainty that this will prove effective over time or even politically durable from one election cycle to the next. Indeed, Trump is threatening a comeback. And if not Trump, then someone like him, uh, potentially threatening to take the U.S. out of the Paris Agreement again and very likely to suspend 
cooperation with China on the one issue, however weak it is, where we do see some cooperation, and that is on trying to um, coordinate uh, uh, climate change policies. Uh, it seems yeah, it's can I just quickly add a couple of points here? Oh, all right. So, uh, yeah, bilaterally, this is another sort of media hot topic lately because of, uh, you know, uh, the House Speaker Nancy Pelosi recently visit to China's Taiwan. And uh, so Chinese government has already announced the suspension of eight, of course, collaboration, cooperation, and one of them is climate change. Uh, so that's very devastating, even demoralizing to the global process. I do want to add back, you know, back to the question you you asked early on. I think one dimension I haven't really addressed. You asked about the climate extreme sort of events mm. and affect you know the global climate. Besides mitigation, uh, you know, clean energy, you know, transition, whatever stuff like that. There is the other equally important side is about adaptation, right? Uh, because we are already living in it. It's becoming the new abnormal. So what does that mean in the international global climate, you know, sort of governance mechanism? There one developed the countries uh, already committed through the multilateral vehicle to provide financial support for poor developing countries. So this $100 billion every year by 2020. This was committed, you know, more than a decade ago. And uh, that still has not delivered yet. And on top of that, actually, and uh, with all the intensive, more frequent extreme weather events impacting literally the broadest developing world, uh, you know, uh, at, so the, the losses and the damages are huge, literally unbearable for many who are already, actually, literally billions of people actually already living in poverty uh, and put their lives and the livelihoods under threats. So as a very important part of the, you know, elements into the global climate process is about the losses and damages, it's about the justice issue, right? And so I think leading up to COP27 in Egypt later this year, that's going to be a major, major issue. I think that probably even the core elements of the negotiation, you know, this year because not only the original commitments from the developed world are not delivered yet, but now, uh, you know, there's a justice issue, you know, with the increasing costs, lives, lost, damages, whatever. So uh, developing countries definitely are going to demanding, you know, more and more financial compensation, actually, from the developed world to them. I think that's going to be uh, getting a lot of attention leading up to the end of this year. Mm, but uh, so it seems it's all points to a gloomy future. Jin, maybe last words from you. Do we have any good news or what can we do as individuals, um, if not at the government level? Yeah, we talk about how how serious the situation is. Uh, on the one hand, we have the pressing climate uh, threat. And on the other hand, uh, globally, we're facing such a kind of uh, uncertainties, uh, which continue to threat to undermine the uh, global collaboration to deal with that. Mm. Having said that, uh, we also need to recognize that uh, uh, the upside, you know, now more than 130 countries have come together to, to make commitment to carbon neutrality. That uh, is um, really unprecedented commitment uh, to bring a low carbon growth uh, globally. Very, very encouraging. 
And um, and Joseph mentioned about uh, you know President Trump pulled out, withdraw from Paris, and now President Biden coming back, and uh, now finally you know for the first time in the U.S. Uh, Congress, uh, a, um, a a climate bill have been passed, and um, and and in China, and you know in China we're we're having all this. Um, the so-called, you know, one plus M policy framework uh, being developed, uh, and China has uh, invested and uh, and managed to build the world's largest uh, solar and uh, wind power and uh, hydropower capacity, the non-fossil fuel capacity, and uh, uh, now have the biggest fleet of uh, of new energy vehicles. Uh, uh, so there are also, you know, good experience that we can tap in. From the you know all, all this put together is not enough. We uh, have to have to re- recognize that uh, you know globally, uh, we try to uh, control the temperature rise by two degrees Celsius by the end of this century, and uh, ideally uh, under one point five because it's important. You know even this uh, just with uh, less than one percent, you know one degree uh, Celsius uh, temperature rise, and that uh, now we experience. Uh, 15 days, more days of hot weather globally. And uh, think about uh, 1.5 and think about 2 and even beyond that. It's it's hard to imagine. So it's very important. Globally, if we want to control that by 1, 1.5 Celsius, uh, then we have to cut the global emission by 45% um, by the end of this decade. Um, and now, obviously, we are... St- it's still rebounding uh, at this moment uh, the carbon emission. So we have uh, we have to do more. And in China, you know, China used eight years to cut our air pollution by half. Cut behind that, it's the emission reduction of sulfur of uh, nitrogen, all more than half, and uh, you know, more than fifty percent. So this is a very good experience we need to tap into. You know, with uh, all this massive monitoring and transparency and public involvement, government changing policy and tap into the market based solutions like green supply chain and green finance. Mm. All these are the good lessons that we need to learn. So on the climate side, you know, we need to also build a transparency and uh, data infrastructure to in- enable and empower the public, the whole society to join the efforts and tap into the market uh, market power. I think we still have the opportunities, but we need to work together to address this uh, changing climate. Mm. And the hotter the globe becomes, the more cooler heads like all of you here are needed to solve the problem in a, in a rational manner, I think. So on that note, we are coming to the end of today's chat. Many thanks to Chang Wu, Executive Director of the Professional Association for China's Environment, Ma Jun, Director of the Institute of Public and Environmental Affairs, and Joseph Mahoney, Professor of Politics and International Relations of East China Normal University, for insightful analysis and opinions. You can leave a review for us either on the topic or on the show. Please subscribe to the Chat Lounge for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Tuyin. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.